Hey, everybody. This is Matt Wellington, Public Health Campaigns Director with US PERG, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Superbugs Unplugged. I'm flying solo today. My buddy, Dr. Price, is not joining us, but I do have the pleasure of talking to uh, Dr. David Walenga from NRDC on, on today's podcast, uh, and I'm very grateful for him taking time to join us. And we're going to be talking about a report that NRDC just came out with called Better Burgers, Why It's High Time the U.S. Beef Industry Kicked Its Antibiotics Habit. So, uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. I'll, I'll pass it over to you so you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Great. Um, hi, Matt. Hi, everybody. Uh, so I'm a physician at the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, and we're one of the biggest uh, environmental organizations in the country. Um, but it's unusual to have a physician in my role. Um, I, I, for most of my career, have been pretty interested in how uh, um, things that uh, go on in U.S. agriculture impact on the environment and public health at the same time. And so antibiotic resistance and the overuse of antibiotics in the U.S. meat industry is really kind of hits right in the middle of that intersection of interest. Yeah, and how long have you been working on, on antibiotics use in, in the food industry? Uh, gosh, it's uh, 20 years, believe it or not. Um, 20 years ago, we, we meaning um, the organization I work for then, as well as NRDC and, and many other groups, came together to form a coalition called Keep Antibiotics Working. And that was my introduction. And it's unusual uh, to have a coalition working together for 20 years, but that's what we've been doing. And that's because this is such a serious and important issue. Yeah, and I, I Perg is part of that coalition. And it's always pretty amazing to me when we get on those calls just to hear all of the different, I mean, there's there's a lot of groups involved in this effort and all of them come from slightly different backgrounds and perspectives. And so it's been really cool for me uh, to to be able to see that and help you know push this issue forward. So you know twenty twenty years it's definitely um, you know you've been in the thick of it for twenty years. So what what is some of the what are some of the takeaways from your work in the last twenty years on antibiotic use in the meat industry? What have you what have you seen? Well, I would say you know at the beginning uh, we were concerned about it, but the public and even the infectious disease community basically was not talking much about the use of antibiotics in agriculture or the meat industry and how it contributes to the bigger problem. Well, the good news is that that's completely different in terms of the experts. They're all very aware that the overuse in agriculture is a big piece of the problem. The um, estimate across the world is that over two-thirds of all antibiotics important to people are actually being used in, uh, f in food-producing animals, so in meat production and poultry production, and about the same percentage uh, is true for the U.S. And the reason that's a problem is because, you know, kind of microbiology 101 says that the more you use antibiotics, the more you spur bacteria 
that are resistant to them to multiply and spread. And that, that's exactly what we see in the U.S. as well. So if we're using two-thirds of our most important antibiotics uh, in livestock, not in people, then that's a problem for people because it's, it's a big driver of why we're getting more and more resistance and more and more infections coming out that don't respond to antibiotic therapy anymore. So, David, what are some of the key data points in this report that you'd want to really stand out to people? Uh, yeah, well, we, we tried to pull those out and also did these really great visuals. Um, thankfully, I've got, uh, I've got folks who are expert in making graphics, so folks should check those out. But one of them is just like a pie chart of all the medically important drugs used in livestock in the, in the U.S., you know, how many are using cattle? Well, it turns out that's the highest use sector. So 42% are used in cattle, 39% in pigs, and then the rest for chicken and turkey and other animals. So if you add the two top ones together, uh, it means that 81% of all the human important drugs used in agriculture are used in beef and cattle production. So that's one. Um, second, uh, thing we mentioned, but it's just this idea that uh, the U.S. is an outlier compared to a lot of other leading livestock producers, cattle producers, in terms of how intensively they use antibiotics. Um, so uh, we've got a great bar graph that compares the U.S. to the Netherlands, France, Denmark, and Britain, and that's where you can see like visually that the U.S. intensity of antibiotic use is three to six times higher than those other countries. So we've we talked on previous podcast episodes about some of the changes in the industry, uh, especially in, in chicken and how much progress there's been there. But the report that you and I are going to talk about today is all about beef and, and cattle. So to lay the groundwork for what you found in the report. Can you just walk us through how does the cattle industry operate in this country? What does it look like? How is it structured? You know, give us that kind of background info if you can. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll talk a little bit in contrast to the chicken industry. So chickens are pretty short living. Uh, it's basically six weeks from a chick to a slaughtered um, what they call a broiler chicken, which is basically what you would buy in the deli or the supermarket. Um, the beef cattle are much different. Um, for one thing, they come from different places. Some come from dairies where they're, they're no longer producing milk, and so they send them to the slaughterhouse. Others start off as calves on a pastured operation, and then they're sent to a feedlot, uh, uh, which is a place typically in a Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, um, kind of in the middle of the country where thousands or tens of thousands of cattle are being fattened up to go to slaughter. And that's how most beef starts out in the U.S. And those animals aren't there for six weeks. They're there for at least six months, maybe even up to a year. Um, so the feedlots are really central to the story of how beef gets produced in the U.S. And, and so our focus in the report was really looking at how these feedlots are using antibiotics important to people. And, and 
how they're overusing it because what we found was that most of these antibiotics are in healthy herds um, and not really treating sick animals at all. Yeah, so most of the antibiotics are in, are in healthy animals. And so why, why is that? What are some of the things that contribute to the massive overuse of these drugs in the cattle industry? What are, yeah, what are some of the justifications that the industry gives? What's going on there? Yeah, so, and let me start off with a caveat. It's, it's, not, it's not like the cattle industry everywhere does this, but it does in the U.S. So what's, what's interesting in the U.S., uh, is these feedlots where they take cattle and they concentrate them in one particular place. They're not roaming around on a pasture like, you know, Daisy the cow that you might see in a commercial or an advertisement. They're behind fences, mostly in these dirt feedlots, and so the feed is brought to them. The animals aren't, like, grazing. They're being fed uh, primarily a corn and soybean-based feed, and uh, they're getting their drinking water out of troughs. And along with that feed and drinking water, there's antibiotics routinely put into the feed and that the herds are getting um, on an ongoing basis. Why? Well, a, a cattle, and this is a little bit in the weeds about bovine, uh, bovine biology, but cattle are ruminants. And what that means is that their stomachs are designed to take grasses, which are really starchy, right, and break down those starches into a form that the animal can use the calories and the, and the nutrients. Well, if you're giving a cow corn and soybeans, those are not grass. And so their bovine stomachs really don't do a great job of converting that into energy. And there's effects, long-term effects on the cattle so one of the things that happens in these feedlots is that the majority of the cattle develop abscesses in their livers. Their livers are basically infected. And um, uh, you can avoid that. Uh, uh, we know how to avoid it. The way to avoid it is to feed the animals grass, not corn and soybeans, uh, or to feed them in a different way with a lot more roughage added. But the feedlots aren't doing that. Instead, what they're doing is feeding them antibiotics continually to keep the animals, which are uh, basically standing long enough to get to the slaughterhouse. And so that's a big problem. And even though the feedlots are using a huge amount of these antibiotics, um, the abscess problem continues, and, and if anything's getting worse. The other major problem on feedlots, though, is that something called, um, it's a lung infection. It's um, called shipping fever, and it's basically a, an infection in the lungs that, as the name implies, often happens after the cattle are shipped, uh, transported. And they're transported at various points, sometimes as calves. They're shipped from a, what's called a cow-calf operation, which is a smaller ranch, and then they're shipped to the feedlot. And so they're really vulnerable to getting uh, respiratory disease. Well, there are, again, there are things you can do to help prevent that. There are things you can do to condition the calves before and kind of boost their immune system before they get to the feedlot. 
There are things you can do on the feedlot, like make make them make the conditions less crowded and uh, uh, better for the health of the cow, so that it doesn't get an infection. But the feedlots, by and large, uh, are not doing that yet. What they're doing instead, again, is feeding them these low-dose antibiotics to try and get them to slaughter without having these problems. And one of the things in the report that we found is that it, that's not working. Basically, they're getting these problems and getting more problems over the last 15 years or so, even though they continue to overuse these antibiotics in a way that's not smart. Right, and this is this is a question I really wanted to ask you because we have heard from you know certainly the industry and then also just industry dominated groups like some of the One Health coalitions that are out there, which I think have uh, largely been co-opted by by the industry. You can make the case for that. And one of the you know opposing arguments they say to us is we can't stop using antibiotics in this way because all of the animals will get sick and die, basically. So it's an animal welfare concern. How can we stop routinely using antibiotics and for these different things, the animals will, will suffer. And of course, everything that you just said points to the fact that, yeah, if you just took the routine antibiotic use out of the equation, of course, the animals would get sick. And that's why you have to change other things. So what else would you say to that point? Like if someone would were to say to you, well, you know, this is a massive animal welfare concern. We can't just take routine antibiotics use out of the system because the animals will get sick. What are the things would you say to show that, well, of course, but that's why we have to have fundament, fundamental changes in how we are raising the animals. What else would you say to that? Yeah, well, let, let me just say that this isn't just me talking, that um, the U.S. is basically taking an approach uh, that's 180 degrees different than the European Union. So the European Union's bigger than the United States, and it also is a huge producer of beef and pork and all the other meats. So the European Union's approach is, goes like this. We want to keep antibiotics for when they're really needed. So when we, you know, do meat production or dairy or whatever, um, our approach is going to be to keep the animal as healthy as possible first to avoid uh, any unnecessary use of antibiotics. The U.S. approach is 180 degrees opposite. The U.S. approach is we are going to use antibiotics to keep the animals healthy. Um, and as I said, our report shows that they're using the antibiotics in huge amounts and the animals aren't healthy. They're, in fact, they're getting less healthy, including on feedlots, but in pig farms too. So what have the Europeans found? Well, they found that there's a whole slew of things you can do to keep the animals healthy first so as to avoid any antibiotic use that's unnecessary, which is most of it. Um, what do they do? They, they invest in more vaccine use. They try to make the conditions healthier for animals, so less crowded conditions that give the animals more space. They do a better job with genetics, which means that, like, there are some breeds that are kind of overbred, and part of that is that their immune systems just aren't as healthy. So go back to the drawing board and start with a cattle breed that's naturally healthier and more resilient. That's a good idea. Um, there's the shipping problem. If you don't want to stress the animal and, and kind of 
set them up for getting sick down the road. You try not to stress them in the first place. And one of the most stressful things is shipping animals around. Well, the U.S. system is kind of based on the idea that shipping animals around a lot, and that's baked into the feedlot problem. So all of these and more are ways that you could rethink how you grow animals turned into ground beef um, in a way that would prioritize making them healthy in the first place, and in the second place, avoiding antibiotics wherever possible. Right. And so when I was looking at the report, just to dig into some some of the key findings here, I was really struck by the um, the finding you have in here about how U.S. producers use antibiotics at a rate three to six times higher um, or more intensely, or you can you can correct me however it's actually properly um, described here. But basically, we're using antibiotics at a rate that is so much higher than than our European counterparts, like you just said. And specifically, there's a line in here that I'm just going to read from the report because part of what made me, you know, when I saw that, I I thought maybe we're just comparing apples to oranges. Maybe the you know the U.S. industry is just so much larger, and so how helpful is it to do this? But then I saw this. You say, while the large French cattle industry slaughters as many animals each year as Texas and California combined, the U.S. industry consumes antibiotics at a rate about four times higher than in France. I mean, that's that's incredible, right? That, that I think, really gets at the, the key points here. So anything else that you'd want to say about the kind of things you saw um, comparing U.S. cattle production to their counterparts across the world? Yeah, um, this is a really key, uh, uh, key way to think about this. Um, so there's two issues, right? As I said, the more you use antibiotics, the more you're going to drive resistance to develop and spread. And that's true in a hospital and it's true on a farm or a feedlot. So the U.S. is important in two respects. First, it's one of the biggest beef producers in the world. So just the fact that it's big means it's using a lot of antibiotics. Okay, that's one thing. Now the US uh, industry is fond of saying, oh, you know, just don't pay any attention to that European model because we're bigger than they are. So you can't really um, worry about the fact that we use more antibiotics. But as you pointed out, the second part of the equation the one that we focus on in the report is that the U.S. industries use antibiotics much more intensively. Well, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that uh, if antibiotics are kind of the top half of the equation, like we're using X million pounds of antibiotics per year in beef or in cattle production, the bottom half of the equation is how big is the population or the size of the livestock population that you're giving those antibiotics to. So it's a ratio, and that's what I mean by intensity. And as you said, our finding was that in France, they use antibiotics in cattle production only a quarter as much or a quarter as intensively as the U.S. industry does. And across many European countries, it ranges from like three to six times higher or more intensive use of antibiotics in the U.S. than in those countries. So I'm talking about not only France, but Denmark, the Netherlands, um, the United Kingdom. So, you know, by themselves, 
uh, any one of those countries might not be as uh, big as the U.S. as a whole, but Texas is one of the largest beef producing states, and uh, France is bigger than Texas in terms of how much it produces. So they are comparable, and still the U.S. is a laggard, not a leader in terms of how smartly or prudently it uses antibiotics. It's it's just a lot of the antibiotic use, if not the majority, is completely unnecessary when you look at how how we're using them in Europe. Right. So this gets to another question I had for you about what do we know? And I think this report does an awesome, you know, an amazing job of laying out here's the information that we have and, and analyzing it in a way that we can look and you know see the comparison between the European counterparts and the U.S. But I'm sure you know, one of the biggest questions that we have working on antibiotics that I, I am sure that you have come against several times is what don't we know? <laughs> so what, as you were looking into this report and finding uh, this kind of information to analyze, what what couldn't you find? What don't we know about antibiotic use in the cattle industry? Yeah, good question. And, and you know, for all of us who are sitting here living through COVID, it, it or reading the newspapers, it's pretty clear that um, one of the problems we've had is like not collecting information because we don't want to know what it tells us. Um, and I, I, by mean, I mean, you know, Congress and federal agencies are not collecting all the information that they probably should be. So the same holds true for this antibiotic use on farms in the U.S. Uh, one of the big problems is that all we have to rely on is data from the pharmaceutical companies on what they're selling. And what we really want is actual data collected every year from the feedlots and the farms on what they're doing. Without that, uh, to some degree, you're guessing at what's going on in farms. Yeah, sales are, are great, they're better than nothing, but we want to, when it comes to antibiotics, we want to do better than nothing, uh, a lot better. Um, and the more we know about how they're being used, the smarter we can be about reducing the misuse and the overuse of antibiotics on farms. And let me just as an aside say that um, I like to use the example of the Netherlands, which is a small country, but a rather big livestock producer. Well, when the Netherlands got serious about reducing antibiotic use in livestock uh, and tracking how it was being used and holding producers accountable, within just like four or five years, they actually were able to reduce their total antibiotic use by 70%, 70%. And the U.S. has been working on this for basically the same period of time and the total antibiotic use in the U.S. has only gone down 21%. And that includes a lot of improvements in chicken. In the last year, the antibiotic use in the beef sector in the U.S. actually went up. In the pig sector, it actually went up. So we're just not measuring up. So um, the U.S. is not collecting any farm use data on antibiotic use in a comprehensive mandatory way. And even though like the World Health Organization says that's a good idea, even our government accountability office, the GAO, has said repeatedly that it's 
what we ought to be doing as a country, but the U.S. Uh, government hasn't wanted to do that, and that's a problem. Right. So given the, the data challenges, I've, I've heard you say a couple times, you know, much or, or most of the antibiotic use in cattle production is unnecessary. What's our best estimate for how much of it? You know, if you were to give a percentage that, you know, X percent is important and, and being used just for treatment of animals, which I know you and I don't don't oppose, versus the disease prevention and, and things like the the problem stemming from just the ways the animals are raised and so they have to routinely use antibiotics to keep them healthy can you put a percentage on that how and yeah is that possible uh it's it's hard um and you know the the report kind of walks through what we had to do to try to estimate it um i think that uh here's what we can say we can say that uh, probably most of the use and maybe the vast majority of the use is not necessary. And the way we get at that is by the kind of comparison with countries like the Netherlands that I was talking about. Or comparing, comparing it across industries, look at chicken. Now the chicken industry uh, has really done an admirable job in trying to reduce its antibiotic use. And by our estimates, over 90% of the chicken uh, being sold in the U.S. now is, is produced without any antibiotics or with no medically important antibiotics. So that's impressive. Um, the, uh, so we're not seeing those kind of reductions uh, or, or the, those kinds of changes by the cattle industry or the pork industry, for example. Um, Beyond that, it gets harder for the very reason I was just talking about. Because we're not collecting uh, uh, data from farms, it gets very hard to say what the farms are doing, and therefore it's impossible to hold them accountable for where they could be reducing antibiotic use. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think the big livestock producers or the U.S. Department of Agriculture want to collect information from farms for that very reason. Um, you know, it's hard to confirm that, but that's my impression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's worth emphasizing something that Lance and I talked about on the last episode about how it's it's pretty ludicrous that we're in the middle of a pandemic that stemmed from, you know, pathogens being passed from animals to people, and yet we are not we are almost completely in the dark about how these critical medicines are being used on farms and, and the kinds of you know, drug-resistant bacteria that are potentially stemming from that and passing to people. Um, so for other things in the report, is there anything else you want to highlight as key takeaways? So I know we talked about the comparison between the European countries and the U.S. What else did you find that you'd want to highlight here? Well, I mean, I would point to a few other things that we know we can do. And again, you know, Europe's a good model because guess what? They've already done it and it worked. So one thing we mentioned, and that is uh, simply tracking where the use happens and starting to hold producers accountable. And I want to emphasize that like 
producers aren't monolithic. They're not all doing exactly the same thing. There are good actors and there are less good actors. So uh, what they found in Europe is that the less good actors are really pretty few in number and have a disproportionate uh, in terms of their impact on overall antibiotic use. So if you could just figure out who those uh, bad actors are and start helping them to do a better job, you make a big dent by the industry as a whole. Um, so uh, that's one piece. The second is that the government really needs to set targets for reducing antibiotic use for livestock as a whole, but also, you know, there should be a target for the beef industry. There should be a target for the pig industry. And, you know, it should probably, maybe in the beginning, it's a pretty modest target, but from what we've seen in Europe, it shouldn't, uh, starting in, for example, 2009, if we compared today's antibiotic use to 2009, then we should be able to easily reduce the overall use by half, if not more. That's what we've seen in Denmark. That's what we've seen in the Netherlands. The European Union is basically saying that, you know, many countries, if not most, who adopt the kinds of non-antibiotic improvements that we talked about earlier should be able to see reductions of 50% or more in their antibiotic use. So that's, that's gonna take a lot more activity uh, by, and leadership by our federal agencies, by states. You know, there are states now that are doing a better job at tracking use on farms like California and Maryland. There are states where they're telling the public more about, uh, um, or cities, I should say, where they're like San Francisco, where now uh, um, supermarkets need to report to the public how intensively the antibiotics are being used in the meat that they're selling. Um, that's something that could be done anywhere and should and should be done, so that we have some accountability in the in the uh, beef and other meat supply chains. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, it's worth noting McDonald's, I think the largest beef purchaser um, out there is currently tracking some of this information for themselves and plans to set reduction targets for medically important antibiotic use across, I think, 85% of their global beef supply chain. And that comes, you know, of course, after some prodding by uh, NRDC and, and PERG and the other folks who have been urging them to do that. And so I think uh, I'm glad that you mentioned all of the policy uh, efforts underway. And I think it's important to also know that some of these massive beef purchasers can make a significant difference as well. And we're still calling on um, other folks in the industry like Wendy's to really step up and help move the beef industry in this country away from overusing antibiotics. Um, so, you know, I think you had mentioned some good actors and I know they're probably few and far between, unfortunately, given the, the current state of the cattle industry in the country, but any of them that you'd wanna highlight, who are the good actors in the US that we can point to? Uh, in the beef sector, that they really haven't emerged, not, not, well, let me back up a second. So I think it's important to talk about uh, how consolidated beef production is in the US. So, uh, and, and across much of the world. So just four companies, um, Tyson, 
uh, JBS, Cargill, and National Beef buy and you know buy and sell over 80%, four fifths of uh, of all the the beef production. So they're the ones that actually buy the cows from these beef feedlots. Well, you know, if even one of those companies uh, said to feedlots, we want you to do a better job of using antibiotics. That's our expectation. We're not going to buy from you. We'll buy from somebody else who does. Well, that would be huge. If two of those four companies did it, it would be even bigger. And pretty soon you could change the whole beef supply chain. That's, that's the degree of power they have both upstream to the feedlots and then downstream all the way to the supermarket level. Because what right now it's whack-a-mole kind of when we talk to the supermarkets, they say, well, we can't do anything because, you know, the companies we buy from uh, say they can't find it. And then the companies we buy from say they can't do anything because the feedlots won't change practices. Well, we, we think that's mostly excuses. And if one of these big beef companies like Cargill, largest private company in the world, JBS, another huge conglomerate, uh, if they made it their intention to use antibiotics more prudently, um, they could make it happen. Right. Where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, I think you could probably attest to this more than I have, um, given the your tenure on, on antibiotics work. But I think that's what we heard from the chicken industry as well for many, many years. Right. I think they were saying this isn't going to be possible. This isn't going to be possible. And then lo and behold, Purdue, uh, one of the largest chicken producers out there, decided to put their foot down and just figure out how to make these changes. And then the, the industry started to come around more and more. So, yeah, where there's a will, right. there's a way. And now basically in chicken, you know, there's no cost difference or basically no cost difference. If you want to buy chicken raised without antibiotics or nearly without antibiotics, it doesn't cost any differently than chicken that uh, has been raised with them by and large. Um, that's not the case in beef. You know, we've got good actors uh, producing, like Organic Valley's a good example. Most people know them from milk, but they're actually big meat producers too. Not big like Cargill or JBS, but, but you know, relatively larger. Um, but if you go to the supermarket, you, you, you are definitely paying more. And what that does is it makes this, uh, the ability to access meat raised without antibiotics into a wealth thing. If you've got the means, if you've got more income, you're better, better able to buy meat raised without antibiotics. Well, you know, that's not really a great way to do public policy. To, to say, hey, if you've got the money to buy meat raised responsibly, you can buy it, but everybody else is out of luck. And that's right. why we need more, um, more deliberate policies at the state and federal level that even the playing field and make sure everybody's using antibiotics responsibly. This has definitely been an interesting discussion. And thank you so much, David, for taking the time to uh, jump on here and talk to me and, and to our audience about the report that you put out. And again, that report is called Better Burgers, Why It Is High Time the U.S. Beef Industry Kicked Its Antibiotics Habit. 
So David, where, where can folks find this report and other information if they're interested in learning more? Well, probably the easiest way, the report came out in June of this year. So if you just go to the nrdc.org website and just type in Better Burgers, you'll, you'll get linked to the page. And there's the report and then there's our analysis. We try to be super transparent about how we reached our conclusions. So you'll find an appendix there. The other thing I wanted to say, Matt, is a lot of what we talked about in terms of beef applies pretty much the same way to the U.S. production of pork. And two years ago, also in June, we put out Better Bacon, which, you know, uh, uh, is also available if you go to nrdc.org. So um, thanks for having me talk about this, and I hope we get some folks kind of digging more into how beef and pork are produced in the country. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David. Thank you. So that was that was great being able to chat with David Walinga. And before we close out the episode, I wanted to invite another special guest onto uh, today's episode, our new fellow on the public health program for U.S. Perg, Sydney Reese. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me, you guys. Yeah, of course. Um, so, Sydney, want tell us more about yourself and, and what you're going to be doing with Perg. Yeah, of course. Um, so, like Matt said, I'm the new public health fellow for US Perg. I'll be based in Boston, um, and I'll be taking point on our relaunch of our antibiotics resistance campaign. So, I know this was a new issue for you. I think before you came to Perg. So, what do you think? You know of of antibiotic resistance and some of the things you've seen, what do you think about it so far? Yeah, I mean, throughout undergrad, I had been pretty involved with um, advocacy work on healthcare in general, but antibiotic resistance in particular was a new topic for me. And I think it's such a clear example um, of how interconnected all of our lives are um, surrounding healthcare in ways we wouldn't expect. And I also think it's a really good example um, of how we need regulation and and public policy and we need people to step forward to fix this what seems like a pretty fundamental issue um so it's been it's been quite the deep dive uh, it's a complex topic but i'm excited to be here and and see where it leads awesome have you decided what you're going to name your new cat yet <laughs> no we just got a new kitten she's sitting right beside me actually um right. we are tied between Miso and Bisquick, like the pancake mix, which is a weird name for a cat, but it's kind of cute. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think I would lean towards Miso. I feel like Bisquick is, it's just, that's kind of hard to say. Bisquick, Bisquick. Yeah, but yeah, uh, she's uh, been quite the rascal. She slept through the night last night, which was nice. Yeah, I was glad to see her um, climbing up your, your screen door when we were on the video call yesterday. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, so tell us uh, what are what else about you and your just overall life? What are some of your favorite hobbies? Favorite hobbies, um, unfortunately, have been been shot by COVID. But um, in normal times, I'm uh, a California girl, true and true. And so I love to be at the beach. I'm a big advocate of hiking, getting out and about. Um, but we have we have substituted those for living room yoga and the occasional walk around the park. Um, but it's been it's been good. Yeah. 
yeah, I remember seeing your um, your yoga setup. It was very professional looking. Yep. Yeah. Well, I am very excited to have you on board, Sydney. I'm I'm looking forward to all the great work you're going to do on our antibiotics campaign. And thank you for jumping on the podcast with me. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to returning as a guest another time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we'll have you on again. Sweet. All right, everybody. So that's a wrap on our uh, latest episode of Superbugs Unplugged, speaking with Dr. David Walinga of NRDC. Uh, and again, definitely check out their website for the Better Burgers Report. And I was very glad to get a chance to introduce all of you to our new fellow, Sydney. And you will definitely be hearing uh, more from her in future episodes. So thank you. Stay safe out there. And you'll hear from us next month. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Superbugs Unplugged. We really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Laura Rogers, Deputy Director for ARAC. Now that you've listened to us, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any questions you have our way, and we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. We'd also love to hear your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the coming months. You can reach us at superbugsunplugged at gmail.com. And one last thing. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and every major listening app. We'll talk to you again next month. Mm-hmm.